Welcome to the Genesis Church Podcast. We'll have more information at the end of the podcast, but for now, please enjoy this week's teaching. Our second scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 31 through 38. I don't know what happened before, but uh, he then began to teach. So, so I've, I didn't read the intro to this, but at whatever point this was, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at, the, at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. Um, do you guys ever hear the scripture passage and think, oh my gosh, where are we, where are we going with this? <laughs> what <are> we, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, fun. <laughs> God bless the lectionary for giving us treasures to choose from, but only so many treasures to choose from as we, as we engage in scripture today. Phil, I'm just going to move this a tiny bit just for right now. Is that okay? I guess the only answer is, oh, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> if you're like, don't. <laughs> oh, you guys, good morning, good morning. Again, I've already been up here. but So this is our second Sunday in Lent. We're continuing with this theme of wilderness, and today we explore the life of Jesus as he moves closer to his death and resurrection. And like I said, this, this passage is a little bit spicy. It's got some stuff in it. And so I'm curious, as we kind of just start out, this is just kind of an open all play. When you hear this text read, when Bob read it for us, or if you are reading through it in your liturgy, what questions come to mind or what um, words either pique your interest or trouble you? What is Peter rebuking him for? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, John. Yeah, yeah, that's a great wondering. We'll touch on that, and we'll touch on that. Nice. What, yeah, Bob. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. I realized I wasn't re- I wasn't restating um, some of what people said. So our online friends are like, there's just silence and Kara saying, yeah, yeah. Um, Cassandra was wondering. Um, about, <laughs> Cassandra, tell me again what you said. <laughs> Sorry. What is okay? What is Peter rebuking Jesus for? John wonders how is it that Jesus is using take up your cross language with his disciples. He hasn't been to the cross yet. Bob is holding this like deep tension of what does it mean for the Son of Man to be ashamed when that doesn't fit with the vision and image of the character of Jesus. Right, right. Nate's like, was that the most adulterous and sinful generation yet? Yeah, what kind of weird contest is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Will's wondering, what's going on in Peter's head when Jesus calls him Satan? I mean, like, what kind of context does he have for that? How is he receiving it? Right? Because we don't know. Right? We don't know Peter's response. Okay, this passage is spicy. Listen, I'm just glad we moved away from juicy nuggets as the phrase that we used at, used at Genesis a lot. That was a, that was a Steve <laughs> utterance, and we don't change a lot around here, but I'll change that. No more juicy nuggets. So, Kristen, yeah. Ooh, yeah, Kristen, how can we discern between human concerns and the concerns of God. You guys, there's like 12 different sermons of all of our curious questions, and I love that. I love our wonderings. There's, this is a really robust text, right? So we're going to kind of pick a particular, p- particular lane of it and explore that, and then whatever of, of your own curiosity that doesn't, doesn't find response or more engagement within this text I encourage us to keep talking about these kind of things, right? Like, I know maybe it's not super cool to be like, ooh, how's your donut? Ooh, do you want to talk about why we are the sinful and blasphemous generation? I don't know. Maybe maybe that's not like a good opener. I don't know. But I just want to, you know, I want to engage that a little bit more, that curiosity outside of this space and in this small few minutes together. Um, Before we continue to journey along, I do want to say, I want to do a little word of care, a little disclaimer, because I feel like verses 34 and 35 have have been used a lot to compel people into a posture of happily accepting suffering as a necessary part of following Jesus. And not just like suffering for the sake of Jesus, but it's been used to keep people sometimes in abusive situations or toxic environments. It's been used to stifle delight and joy, right? Like this idea that like your Christian walk, you shouldn't, you shouldn't find joy in that. If you're really following Jesus, it should only be about suffering. And I want to say that at the start, I don't really find that kind of language or that, that usage particularly helpful as a theological framework for how we understand Jesus and God when you kind of line that up 
over and against the other the portraits that we have of what God invites us into. Be, um, Bruce Epperly is a theologian that I really enjoy. He's a process theologian. Um, if anybody wants to nerd out and start a little process theology group, let's do that. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I find his writings helpful, and he wrote, when Jesus speaks about losing our lives, it really should be looked at in a healthy rather than self-destructive manner. His comments make theological and ethical sense among equal agents, and they're not a call for marginalized peoples to sacrifice while the privileged maintain a status quo. And the self that Jesus is referring to is Whatever part of us is the inauthentic, the self-interested, the the narrow and ego-driven and defensive self, the self that's not bound up in mutual love, the self that's not bound up in the care of one another and rooted in the unconditional love of God. Because pruning that self-centered self, taking up one's cross, pruning that part of ourselves helps us to reveal more of a Christ-centered self within. So that's my little end of disclaimer on, on, what, on a particular set of verses that have always felt kind of extra tricky to me. We don't have to do a deep exegesis of this text to see that it's just difficult, right? But at the heart of it, what rings true for me is that there really is just a deep disconnect between what Peter and the disciples hope for and what they're hoping Jesus will be and what Jesus understands of his mission and what he's calling them to. There's relationship tension, right? You have like, you're following your friend, he calls you Satan, you're like, oh, this feels awkward, right? Like, it doesn't, it's not, yeah. I, could, I feel like the other disciples around him would be like, oh my gosh, I am definitely not speaking up today, right? But, but there's also, there are political expectations woven in here. There are unknown spiritual realities also at play, and we have the disciples hoping that God works one way and then having to kind of butt up against and grasp what it means when God might have other plans. Our scripture portion today is set within a longer discourse. So Jesus, this is the what happens first. Bob's like, and then he starts teaching. Well, this is the pre, this is what comes before. Um, Jesus, is fe- he feeds the 4,000. Then he and his disciples, they get into a boat. And in that time, there are more requests for Jesus to prove who he is. Jesus heals a blind man. He asks the disciples questions. Who do you think I am? And when they respond, Jesus repeatedly says, do you not yet get it? In verse 12, when he's asked for a sign, the text says that Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit. And I can just feel him like, picture him feeling the weight of the people around him. Eye roll, yeah, like, oh my gosh. They don't quite understand yet. He asks the disciples what other people are saying about him. He's like, what's the word on the street? And Peter calls him the Messiah. But then here's what happens. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Then a few verses later, Jesus is telling people, right? So Jesus is like, keep quiet. They go off. Jesus starts telling people. And Peter's like, uh, I thought that was supposed to be a secret. So when Peter rebukes him, I think a lot of that comes out of the fact that he's like, wait, no, you told us not to tell. 
Now we're telling, I'm, I'm not tracking with you here. And so part of me really feels for Peter here, right? He staked everything on this person that he's following. He believes in him, and now he's chastised by him, and he can't bear to hear about what Jesus is telling them, that it's going to end this way. It would be so confusing if you were Peter, I think. But just as Jesus withstood the temptation in the wilderness, he resists Honestly, the temptation that Peter is alluding to and the temptation that Peter is offering by saying don't talk about it is really a way to limit God's way of being in the world to what Peter wants. It's a dangerous business, and Jesus rejects that temptation even if it comes off in kind of harsh language to his friend, his follower. And we see at play here two different ideas about who Jesus is and what's, what he's there to do. Because when Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah, it's a term that's reserved for royal triumph, for the restoration of Israel. And Jesus rebukes him because the person Peter wants him to be, the Messiah, the one who's going to restore the nation of Israel, is not what Jesus is there to do. In fact, he's there for something far more expansive, something that feels impossible for Peter and the other disciples to really wrap their head around. Theologian Ched Myers writes that the call to discipleship that Jesus uses with the crowd, that, that take up your language language, that take up your cross language, even though Jesus had not yet gone to the cross, it was language that would have been in direct reference, actually, to the Roman Empire. So they used crucifixion as a tool to silence people. So that was their tool of fear. That was how they executed dissidents. And it, it honestly would have probably been a slogan, a recruiting slogan for Jewish rebels and insurgents who fought against Rome. So it was essentially Roman propaganda. They would say, we want you as the people to sacrifice everything about who you are for Roman peace. And then if you didn't, there was the threat of punishment by death. And that's the bottom line of the power of the state, right? That's how they're going to keep people in line. The fear of this threat of death keeps the dominant order intact. But by resisting this fear, pursuing kingdom practices, the disciples, they can contribute to shattering the power and the reign of death that they are bringing to the people. So by using this type of imagery, this you take up your cross, Jesus takes language that would have been commonplace as a fear technique, right? And then he shifts it to a different facet of what God is doing in their midst. He's not calling them to a suicide mission, but instead he wants followers to understand his life is more than just simply what they've seen or even what they might hope for. And I imagine Jesus and the, Peter and the other disciples looking at each other with concerned looks. Like, what, what is he talking about? First he's talking about how not only is he going to die, but now he's saying we're going to have to do the same thing. We're going to have to sacrifice ourselves. He's using the same language as the Roman oppressors. And honestly, if you're a disciple, that's like a real momentum killer. Right? Because you've just left everything behind. You've left your job. You've left your family. You've left security. And they followed Jesus. And now this is kind of what he's inviting them into. 
And living into this uncertainty and ambiguity would have been as difficult for Peter then as it, was, as it would be for us today. And sometimes we give the disciples a hard time, but I have no doubt that if I were among the disciples, I too would have missed the point, right? You kind of hope. You dream. You are under threat of oppression. And there's hope that this person could break you out of that. Because no one wants to think of their friend and their teacher being murdered. Nobody wants to live under oppressive regimes. No one wants to live a downward trajectory, right? Where all of human nature implores us to be successful, to be powerful, to be strong. And the idea of a person who comes to embody these kind of characteristics, the very opposite of these things, is jarring at best. And as the disciples apprenticed after Jesus, they start to get glimpses, right? They're not totally understanding, but they're starting to get glimpses of what Jesus is talking about, which comes into sharper focus once Jesus is resurrected. In fact, just days after, the, after these encounters, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the mountain where he's transfigured before their eyes. They get to see another glimpse another facet of who Jesus is. They get to realign their hopes and dreams about who Jesus is in new ways. They had to realign. They had to course correct. They had to recalibrate. And it was a continual process for them. Likely one that took far longer than Jesus' ministry and his death and his resurrection to understand and that's not unlike what it is for us today. During Lent, we're invited to turn inwards to interrogate our understandings of God, of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, and to consider how we might course correct our lives to pattern ourselves after the divine. Because Peter, like I said, has to recalibrate his own thinking as he follows Jesus. The rest of the disciples have to do the same as they continue to hold on to their hopes that Jesus is there to tear down the Roman Empire. And of course, it makes sense to want Jesus to arrive and to do just that. But D Jesus does not show up like that in Scripture, right? He doesn't come like some jacked-up Rambo with guns blazing, ready to topple the Roman Empire. Jesus does the opposite of what humanity expects, and in doing so creates a new kingdom for us to participate in. And that new kingdom is marked by the love of God. It's, ma it's marked by love for God, love for one another, love for self. And it's a sacrificial love that would rather risk death than to let the systems of power crush any more of our neighbors. And it is an impossible standard to keep. But that's what it means, right, to follow after Jesus, to pattern ourselves. It's not an all or nothing. It's not perfection or failure, you're in or you're out approach. It's the gentle recalibrating when we're faced with new information, when we're faced with a person in front of us who has needs, when we're faced with that moment of looking inward and feeling like, hmm, maybe I can tweak a little bit. So we recalibrate recalibrate, we course correct, we lean into the mystery of things that we cannot fully comprehend, and we ask in humility for God to show us 
some new facet of divine presence. And so we just, we try again. My favorite Old Testament professor, Terry Fretheim, used to say that it's more important for us to ask, what kind of God do you believe in, as opposed to, do you believe in God? As our world becomes increasingly fragmented in our understanding of what the word Christian means, I often think, how do we all fall under the same umbrella, right? We believe very different things about God. I find it, it's a helpful question to ask during Lent as we look inward, as we consider our own lives and how we know and cannot know God. What happens when we, like Peter, have to shift our understanding of who Jesus is or consider again anew who God is? The wilderness often feels like a place where we have to come face to face with some difficult truths about ourselves, about God, about our faith community, about our place within it. Our lives can often become disruptive, disrupted as new information evokes the need for a new and different response. And that's part of why the wilderness feels so life-altering. It requires us to interrogate so many things. It causes us to interrogate why we believe and what we believe. Some of us have had to reassess our perceptions of God since our faith journeys began. I like to joke that I've been deconstructing since I was 12. When I sat in confirmation class and had a whole lot of questions. <laughs> and the constant realignment that I've done. But there are others among us who have had to make some theological changes that felt more like tectonic plates are shifting and the entire ground and terrain as you know it is no longer the same. Times when we wonder if we believe a single word of it anymore. The wilderness of the spiritual journey, most of us have been here before in some facet or another. Maybe not this exact location, but some place out here in the wild figuring out our spiritual terrain. If a shift in faith is new for you, welcome. You are among good company. It might feel scary. It might feel like you can't quite find your equilibrium. You might be wondering if it had just been easier for you to not ask those questions that led you out there in the first place. And sometimes you think back to what it felt like in those city gates, remembering the good times, the success, the vibrant small group you had, the rush of a dynamic worship experience with a huge band and the swell of music, the certainty of belief. It can feel terrifying to be on the outside of that, uncertain about what lies ahead, wondering if you're the only one, wondering if you have enough provisions, wondering if you believe anything anymore. But friends, in that, Jesus goes with you. God goes with you. The Holy Spirit goes with you. You did not leave them behind in that place of certainty. They travel with you. And you don't have to leave behind everything that you held dear in your journey of faith. You don't have to do that. But you might get to know in the wildness, you might get to know the divine in new ways you've never expected. Peter thinks he knows what Jesus is about. All of the disciples did. But Jesus says there's something bigger going on here. In Luke 24, 21, as the disciples are on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' death, they say, but we had hoped he would be the one to redeem Israel 
And when Jesus reveals his identity, he reminds them again that they're thinking too small. When confronted with new information and when new questions rise, when things unsettle us, we can choose to dig in and hold our position. Right? Confident that what we've chosen is the way. Or we can keep a posture of curiosity and wonder and exploration, remaining open to a new revelation, a new tapestry that God is weaving in our midst. And some of us have made our homes out here in the wilderness. A little community of cottages. Maybe there's a little library. A baker. A tavern. You know, I love that tavern imagery. That's where I'm at. I think I just described the village from Beauty and the Beast, you guys. <laughs> All right, so we're out here in, the, in a little French village in the countryside, okay? <laughs> but we've set up a small post in the wilderness because we want to build again, right? Not just the same version of what we used to do, but with maybe more progressive ideas. But we've wanted to take language and ritual, and structure, and theological ideas, and we want to turn them over and over in our hands like rocks, deciding what feels grounding and life-giving, what pieces are supportive and reflect what we're learning anew about Jesus, about God, about ourselves, about each other, and then putting together a new little pile of stones to mark our space in the wilderness a new place of remembering, a new table in the wilderness for all to gather, a new place for conversation born out of freedom rather than fear, where questions are celebrated and we bring our full selves, our grounded, centered selves, our sometimes salty and spicy selves to the table. And God is at that table in the wilderness, friends. In fact, God set the table God prepared the meal. God laughs with our jokes. God holds out that tissue box when our tears are flowing. God lets out a hearty yes when someone asks a really great question. And there's always, always, always room for one more at that table. And God is always welcoming that person, greeting them by name, making sure they have what they need, drawing them into community and conversation and care. When we're confronted with new images of Jesus, new facets of the mystery of God, I hope we're able to pause and consider this curious and strange experience we live through. I hope we can lean into the Spirit's movement, helping us to recalibrate and to learn again and anew what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I hope we can remember that even when we don't understand God's grand plan, when it feels like we thought it was one way and we're learning new things, I hope we remember that there is grace and welcome and God's presence regardless. Amen. Before we move into our prayers of confession, I want to invite you this week into two activities. The first is called Mapping Your Spiritual Journey, and there are copies of this out um, on the, the countertop above the Welcome Center. It's a helpful piece. I, I find it helpful. Um, you can pick up that template when you leave. It helps you consider your own story. 
noticing the ways that you've experienced God's presence, naming and noticing the places where you've had to learn something new about your faith, when you've kind of been clued in a little bit more about what it means for you to follow after Jesus. You can get as arty and crafty as you want with that. And if you're a person who loves linear thinking and a, a timeline works for you, create a timeline. Dan, did you just smile? Did you just giggle? Because that, that's maybe Dan. I feel like Dan and I should each do ours and then hold them up and then people will be like, oh my gosh, I understand now how your brains work. Because when I've done mine, mine are like curly coo little like paths through like a wilderness, right? Yeah. So, but it's helpful. It's helpful to remember those places. There are some guiding questions in it. And it helps you to think through where you've noticed God, where you've felt God wasn't there at all. And there is information for you to gather about that fact as well. And the second is called Bread for the Journey. And you'll see a post today on the socials with like the image that Will created. Um, I've dorkily been really wanting to make like a Genesis mixtape for a while. But um, so we're going we're gonna to cultivate a Genesis mixtape for Lent. Not a real mixtape, of course, like the modern mixtape, which is a playlist. But if there's a song or two that you find inspiring or challenging or perhaps draws you into God's presence or just simply brings delight to you, would you be willing to share it with all of us? Simply, you can, you can simply comment on the social media posts that you'll see, or you can send an email or text to Will with the name of the song and the artist. And then he will add them to the Bread for the Journey playlist. And then you can access the playlist in a variety of ways. Uh, Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, and you can find on social media our links for that. I find that it is helpful to crowdsource as much as we can for joy and delight and support and encouragement. And I hope you'll join us in that little endeavor this Lent. Thank you for listening to the Genesis Church Podcast. Our teaching team is made up of men and women who love asking probing questions of each week's scripture portion. Creating opportunities for our community to respond from wherever they are in their faith formation. We follow the Revised Common Lectionary and a church calendar because they anchor us in something which can hold us no matter what life throws our way. Our goal is to become ordinary apprentices of Jesus who are learning to love God, ourselves, and others wholeheartedly. If you have any questions or would like to connect with us, please visit genesiscove.org. Thank you.